did sound good. That was a good ass audio mm -hmm. sample. I think that's gonna be our stock sample. All right, so here's a couple of weird stories from the internet. I'm ready. A nine-year-old Chinese girl was playing outside in 1992 when she was carried off by a whirlwind and deposited unhurt in a treetop almost two miles away. According to a wire report from May 1986, a freak wind lifted 13 children in the oasis of Hami in western China and deposited them unharmed into sand dunes <laughs> and scrubbed 12 miles away. That seems excessive. A, a wind gust? You mean like a F-75 tornado? Yeah, that's a, not a whirlwind. It's that's a day. hurricane. Yeah. 12 miles. That's a ride. Just picked them up and set them down 12 miles away unharmed. Right. June 28th, 2002, in the middle of a spate and unexplained cattle mutilations in Argentina, something macabre was found in the field near Succo, west of Rio Cuerto in San Luis province. 19 cows were stuffed into a sheet metal water tank, closed with a conical cap. Nine were drowned, the rest barely alive, having endured freezing temperatures, and not to mention the shock of their lives, stuffed into a sheet metal water tank. How big is this water tank? 19 cows. Yeah, that's a lot. They're big. Who put them there? That's... Well, where's the opening? As a conical cap. It's a water tower. There's not like a ramp and an entry door. Yeah. You're hopping in from the top or like a discharge at the bottom, and the discharge is always small. So you have high pressure from the gravity for the water. You think it was a whirlwind? Put them in there and close the lid? 19. Couldn't 19 get, of them. Tried yeah. 20, and they couldn't get the cap down. Yeah. Pulled one out, put him back Unharmed down. in a yeah. treetop two miles away. Keep her moving. Not your business. <laughs> they got you other 19, quiet down. We got to screw this cap. Put your head down. Yeah, I'll read this other one, and we're going to go into the main episode, uh, to the meat. So Bobby Shaffron was 19 when he arrived on campus for his first day of college classmates kept calling him Eddie. It's confusing him. So he went on to discover that he had a lookalike on campus. Some people were convinced that they were twins and they eventually went on to find out that they were actually a set of triplets. So another gentleman, David Kelman, contacted Bobby and Eddie when their photo was published in a local paper because he looked just like them also. So they go on to learn that they were triplets separated at birth. They were each adopted by families of varying economic levels as part of a larger psychological study. Wow. So this study f was focusing on nature over nurture, and they were deliberately placed into different socioeconomic families to see how they would grow up. That doesn't seem ethical. Who decided that like their future was going to be dictated by the needs of the study? Hello, I'm Sonny Black. Welcome to the Fundamentals of Nonsense. Hey everybody, I'm Sam. I uh, have a really, really cool story for everybody today. I had a lot of trouble deciding what story I really wanted to pursue. I know I talked about doing the 1904 Olympics. I'm, I'm sticking with that, but I, I felt like I was going to have a hard time topping the Timothy Dexter story. I'm pretty confident this is going to this is a shake a candle to it. All right. You and I for talent will do fine. The good part about this one is it's not quite as concentrated on one individual as much as it is an event, which is really, really cool because there's a ton of information to unpack between a handful of different yeah. subjects that were involved in this at once. Olympic Games date back to Athens, Greece. So the first instance of the modern Olympics in, in the era of, of what we know it is now right. took place in Athens again. So the first one had about 250 athletes from 14 different countries, 14 different nations. At this time, they were pretty much all European, like 75% or higher was, they were Greek. So outside of, outside of them being Europeans, the only other nation that was, that was really predominant there was um, the American team. Really? 
it was it was largely con- considered a success. This obviously is the foundation of what we know as the Olympics now. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of that is attributed to them them paying that homage to the original Olympic Games in Greece. So it was it was considered a pretty big deal, and it, it gained its traction there. It's where it all comes from. Is in 1896. The second Olympics were held in Paris in 1900. However, it was uh, originally supposed to be where the first Olympics took place. Oh. But when they when they sat down and, and were thinking about where they were going to delegate this at, the, the conference that was establishing the Olympic Games at the time right. didn't want to wait six years to host the first Olympic Games. Okay. They, that's when they decided to have it in Athens. And uh-huh. then so that makes sense. in 1900, four years later, they have the second Olympics in Paris. Okay. Yeah, so this is about 123 years ago in Paris when the, the second Olympics take place. This, this one was obviously a lot larger after the return of these games. This event actually drew about 1,200 competitors. This was also the first time women were allowed to participate in these games. This event was also tied to the World Fair. This was one of the first instances of this human zoo kind of mentality that took place. Uh, in, at the World Fair in Paris, they had the, the first that, that I could find. I didn't dive too far into how many of this. It was kind of an unsettling topic. Yeah. So they would kind of bring in these, what they considered savage people, and put them on display in, just, in kind of what would be their living conditions, what would look accurate around them and display them as very, very savage people. So the, the original exploitation of non-Western marginalizing, we're, we're going on expeditions to find people to put on yeah, display. So it, when, when they tie these things to the World Fairs, it becomes more of a, like a substance materialistic event mm-hmm. as well. However, the, the Olympic Games did very well at, at the same yeah. time with this. They didn't allow everybody to win medals in this one. They were giving out cups and trophies and stuff like that as well. Did they uh, have Did they have USADA back then that tested? No. For, uh, so we'll we'll get into that. Enhancing. Yeah. So we'll get into that. That right. that kind of takes place when we get to 1904 when we start to learn a little more about really? some of the first instances of substance abuse in the Olympics. So this was also the only Olympic event to ever use live animals as targets for the shooting event. So the target practice in the Olympics and stuff like that. They this this event they had live pigeons that they would release during the shooting event and they were just blasting pigeons out of the air in front of everybody to see who was the better marksman in this wow there's a lot of weird uh kind of chaotic history behind these first few events <laughs> so the so the javelin throw it was originally just two guys looking at each other in a football field it's who's gonna get three spears first. start chucking mm-hmm. how do we know who wins oh you'll know you'll know <laughs> I didn't I didn't dive too far into those other two events because I wanted to write this piece in the 1904 Olympics. Yeah. So I kind of thumbed through it all, just found a few facts about it that would kind of drive uh, the interest in how, how this solidifies. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... So we now get to 1904. This was the first event that took place, the first Olympics that took place in the U.S. Obviously, okay. the first two yeah. were in Europe. Chicago originally won the bid to host the Olympics, but... The Louisiana Purchase Exposition is going to take place in St. Louis. So this was also the, considered the St. It. Louis World Fair as okay. well. So this was going to, it was a huge draw as it was. Yeah. And they're talking about hosting the Olympics in Chicago. So St. Louis is saying, we're having an international event as well. We can't have two international events. There's a bunch of pressure happening. Right. And St. Louis is putting all this pressure in Chicago. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. What, what happened in the discussion that broke it down that eventually gave... St. Louis ends up getting awarded the Olympics of 1904. With this being tied to the World Fair, in 1904, the 
the World Fair actually presented a bunch of scientific advancements and architectural advancements and stuff like that. It was it was a pretty big deal. A lot of people were coming around seeing new stuff. One of the first telephones, I think, were on display. And uh, X-ray machines debuted in 1904 at the World Fair. So there's a really cool story about this, too. So the X-ray machine, which debuted in 1904 at the, the St. Louis World Fair, was actually going to debut at the World Fair in 1901. But uh, the guy was there to debut this X-ray machine and show it to the public. And uh, President McKinley is out. He's greeting people, and he greets this little girl. And he was known to carry a red carnation on his lapel. And it was his good luck charm. He was all, he, So he would keep bouquets of these red carnations. He would always wear them on his red lapel. Gotcha. And he goes out and he greets this, this little girl as he's walking through the, the World Fair in 1901. He gives this little girl his red carnation. It's ah. his good luck charm. And he says, I must give this flower to another little flower. And he moves on and moments later greets another guy who shoots him twice. Right after he gives off his good luck charm. He ends up dying a couple of days later, I think, from gangrene caused mm-hmm. by the wound. So that's that's just a weird random story about Tales uh, all the, time. the X-ray machine that debuted in 1904. It was supposed to debut in 1901. McKinley got assassinated. And the guy's like, wow, fuck, I guess this has got to wait. All right, all right. All right. Yeah. Let's table this. Yeah. Read the room, buddy. Mm. Same time for X-rays. It's How weird is that, though? Like Moments later, he gives away this lucky charm he's been carrying. Mm-hmm. He, he always wears a red carnation on his lapel because he thought it was lucky. I wonder why he decided that today's the day. I'm, all, I'm the luckiest man alive anyway. Yeah, don't get better than this. This this World Fair of, of 1904, is, it's very bizarre. They they had what they called the Anthropology Days, which was their version of this human zoo. The information I got on this were like, these people were trafficked in and put on display, and they were under very terrible conditions, obviously, to get here on ships and boats, and they were mm-hmm. given very little. A lot of them died to get here sure. to this World Fair in St. Louis. And St. Louis was really hard to get to anyways at this time, in the early probably. 1900s. The smoothest way was probably go through the Gulf and take the Mississippi all the way. Yeah. I mean, it's probably faster than hitting New York. and. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was up through Louisiana. Yeah. I don't know that for sure, but there's another guy in the story that makes his trek up to St. Louis through Louisiana, and he has a very interesting story. Also in this Anthropology Days thing, uh-huh. they did games that involved only the people from these uncivilized tribes. So it was like uh, totem pole cool. climbing, oh, yeah. mud throwing, spear throwing. It was wildly inappropriate, right? It, I mean, it was a charade. It was, uh, when you look back at history, a lot of this kind of shit's swept under the rug mm-hmm. due to just the foul, racist nature well, of yeah. it. Perspective changes and you look like a real jerk. So it, the 1904 Olympics is still, the most memorable event that happened there was the marathon. It had decorated runners. And runners mm-hmm. who would go on to be decorated. This marathon itself almost condemned marathons from ever existing in the Olympics again. We have 32 competitors that enter into the marathon. 18 withdraw from the competition while it's happening due to exhaustion. Leaving 14 to finish, which in the math there's 44% finish ratio. of. I, I don't know how much recruiting. I know a couple of these guys earn their position to compete in this marathon through accolades. Oh. And through completing you know weird courses or long distance running things like that so there were a handful of people that did qualify to be here but then there were a handful of like walk-ons and stuff like that too so 44 percent to this day is still the lowest completion rate of the marathon in olympic history i guarantee you so this marathon itself uh it's 24.85 miles long it was uh, unpaved so i have this paper from history uh written by karen abbott she talks a little bit about the conditions one of the, the excerpts from this page is, in many places, cracked stone was strewed across the roadway, creating perilous footing. 
The men had to constantly dodge crosstown traffic, delivery <laughs> wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. That's like having a Formula One race with open roads. This is the equivalent of Fast and Furious racing in the 1900s. <laughs> yeah. It was 24.85 miles long, unpaved, dusties. I mean, these roads were dusty, so they were rough, rough conditions Louis, to run right? in. Yeah, in St. Louis. When was it? What? 1904 in August. Oh, yeah, it's rough. Hot, humid, nasty. So if you know anything about Missouri weather, in August, it's hot as shit. It's humid. It's nasty. It's really heavy air. Yeah, you can chew it. It's like breathing through a wet towel. Uh They're they're all at at the starting line. First shot gets fired for them to start at 3.03 p.m. on August 30th in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, they picked the best time of the day. You yeah, know, it's gonna be real hot. So this was by 30. design too. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, this is by design to put these guys in these really, really tough conditions mm-hmm. to run a twenty-five mile marathon. Mm-hmm. One, a couple of sources I read from say that there were two places to drink water to rehydrate in this path. Yeah. One was at the six-mile mark. One was at the twelve-mile mark. Okay. A lot of papers only give credibility to the twelve-mile mark. That'd be rough. There was one place to get a, a, to rehydrate yourself, and it was halfway through this marathon on these dusty roads with these mm. perilous footing conditions. And a lot of these guys had a uh, their trainers and physicians were f- like following mm. them in cars behind them, and they're kicking this dust up too. So the guys behind them are just mm-hmm. eating a bunch of gravel and sand and dust. Mm. We know the conditions. We know. We know that not a lot of people make it through this, so let's let's talk about the people who were in this race. All right. So Lynn Tawanyane and John Masciani. The nature of the events of all of this kind of overlooked the historical fact that these were the first black Africans to run in a marathon in the Olympics. So they, they both had served as long-distance message runners during the Boer War. So this is 1904. The Boer War had just wrapped up in 1902. Some of the papers say that they were both barefooted, but I, I can confirm at least one of them was barefooted when they came to the, the starting line. What a tough dude. So I found another paper that referenced uh, another South African man named Bertie Harris. Hold uh, on here. So Bertie Harris, was he a competitor or? He was from Alanil North, which was another African providence. Uh, and he was considered the best long distance runner in his country at the time. Uh, There's not a lot of information on this guy. I tried to look him up. I couldn't find photographs of him. He was supposedly at this time so invested in, in running in this marathon that he was training daily on the roads of St. Louis. Uh-huh. He's the first participant to actually enter the race. He doesn't make it. He, he can't handle the conditions. So he gets 15 miles in. He's got 10 miles to go. So he, he bails out, hitches a ride back. He's done with the race. Yeah. So let's go back to John Masciani. Yeah. I couldn't find much on his experience during the marathon, other than he, fin- he did finish the race uh, in 12th place. His fellow runner who started with him, Lynn, he was proving himself to be quite the runner. And he was very well placed it, it never says what place he was actually in and just due to the nature of his finish i assume he was probably top five or top three and he he loses his position in this race when he gets chased off track by a handful of wild dogs oh yes so lynn gets chased off course by a mile loses like seven plus minutes just getting ran off course by a dog he ends up coming back on course and finishing ninth still so there's a gentleman named william garcia and initially, he was in the lead when, uh, when the race takes off. So damn near dies in the middle of this race. He starts coughing up blood, and he passes out on the side of the, the trail. And he's, later, somebody finds him, and they take him to the hospital. 
So when they get him there, they found that he had inhaled so much dust that it had coated his entire esophagus and Holy tore cow. the lining in his stomach, causing a massive hemorrhage. And it damn near kills him out there to run this, this race. This is how shitty the conditions are. Mm. So there's another gentleman named Sam Meller, who he had actually won the Boston Olympics two years prior to this. And he drops out after 16 miles because of the dust also. Then you get John Lorden. So John Lorden wins the mm -hmm. 1903 Boston Marathon the these year are, before these are this. These tested guys. These are battle-tested yeah, runners. Yeah, they're not, there's no shocks coming yeah. in this. So he starts throwing up 10 miles in and checks out, gets a ride back also. Really? The best on earth are telling us no mas. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to cut this or reschedule or something. They had to know going in. If all of these guys are quitting, I bet before going in, they also had the same like resistance by those same coaching or whatever countries yeah. going, this is not adequate. Or did it just sneak up on them? You know, back then it could. So we get to a guy that is one of my favorite stories in this whole event. Yes. His name's Felix Carvajal. He was known in Cuba already. He, he already had accolades in Cuba for, for being a long distance runner. Essentially a mailman and a, a long distance message deliverer during the Spanish-American War. Yeah, he's tough. So I found his biography on, I think, olympics.com. Yeah. And it states that during one of these deliveries, he ran the entire distance of the Cuban island in 16 days. So he secures the funds to come to the States and, and take place and participate in this, in this marathon by he's petitioning the mayor of Habana, where he's at in Cuba. Uh -huh. And he's, run, he, he's petitioning and running around the city hall there, also taking donations and he's running for tips. And he eventually secures the funds to come to the States and participate in this. So I tried to figure out what his journey here to the States was, how he got from Cuba here, where exactly he landed, what port, stuff like that. I couldn't find that information, but he ends up in New Orleans. He gets there to a bay in New Orleans and he starts gambling mm -hmm. and loses all of the money he had raised to come to the States and participate in this 1904 race, this marathon in a game of craps. He goes fully broke and now has no way to get there or to secure his position, any of that. So he hitchhikes and runs and walks for the majority of the distance between New Orleans and St. Louis. You think before, you know, if you're throwing dice at a casino, there's a certain point where you're like, I can't, uh, you know, I can no, I no longer can afford the bets that I'm choosing to make. But also he's like, worst case scenario, I'm supposed to be training. If I lose everything, my lunch money, my per diem, I'll just run up there. I'm supposed to be doing that anyways. If I lose either, I hit it big. I ain't even going to St. Louis. Or I, I lose, then I'll just walk and jog up there. I should be anyways. Yeah, I'm good at this already. Yeah. I'm just curious if he got there and was just like all in. Mm. He just walked in like gloriously uh, through the doors open. All in. Black, 17. Yeah, he's like, the boat ride sucked. Um, my <laughs> wing, Boy, are my wings tired. All on black. <laughs> I imagine that's how he did it too. And he's like, oh, shit. And they're like, no. All right, I'm going to hit the can. I'm going to start jogging up to St. Louis. I'll see you fellas <laughs> later. <laughs> That's hilarious. Due to this, he shows up at the last minute uh -huh. to, to check into this race, and he's still in full attire. He's in yeah, because he ran a marathon four days every day before that. I bet you he smelled funky when he got mm. there. Same clothes, too, he landed mm. in New Orleans with. He has nothing now. So he, he hitchhikes and runs the distance to, from New Orleans to St. Louis, and he gets there at the last minute. And he's in a, a full-blown button-up white shirt. Uh, the reports say walking shoes. I don't really understand what that means, the difference in between walking and running shoes in the 1900s. Was it 04? Yeah. Yeah, these weren't were like new balance. Not running shoes. No. 
if you wear them too long, hey dudes on. Yeah, if you wear them too long, you start to feel like the tacks pushing through the leather yeah, in the bottom. There's no soul integrity. Oh, I think I stepped on a nail. No, yeah, that's part of it. He issue. pops up in a pair of tie dye Crocs. <laughs> <laughs> Slap so, him. He's he, like, hold on, hold on. All right, they're in four wheel drive. I'm ready. Yeah. When he shows up, he's in. He's still fully. He's got a beret on, but I'm sure. And a f- just full on pair of pants, long johns on underneath of it, and walking shoes. Another racer, another runner, takes pity on him, gets a pair of shears, and cuts his pants off. Not off, but cuts the legs off his pants. I'm so glad, he's more I'm comfortable. Glad you clarified. Yeah, that because <laughs> that's going to be a problem at the starting line. Why are you cutting my pants off, man? Yeah. So the guy with the scissors was disqualified immediately for sexual misconduct. So the race starts, and uh, Mr. Carvajal reportedly hadn't eaten for 40 hours prior to this. That's a problem. We, we've discussed this exact moment yeah. before, and we talked about this next thing I'm going to talk about okay. and what his motivation behind this was. So he hadn't eaten for 40 hours. He's, he's running, yeah. and he sees a, a couple of spectators eating oh. peaches. So he asks them for a peach. They deny his request. He snatches two Who peaches and takes off. Yeah, Who are the haters? Like, huh. When, when I read this part, I was like, okay, now I get that a little more. Because at first, when we talked about this, I was like, why the fuck yeah. would he just steal shit from people? Ranked among the world's best at his event, and he decides to do a weird smash steal. and grab on peaches <laughs> in mid-event. No See, not. Yeah. I'm so. glad the second time I dove into this, it yeah. kind of cleared that up for me a little bit. So he, he gets two peaches. He still hadn't eaten in 40 hours, because mm. two peaches, eats him, still hungry. He gets yeah. a few miles down the road and spots an apple orchard. And he runs into the apple orchard and he grabs a couple of apples off the ground and eats those as well as he's on his way. Turns out these apples were rotten. Oh, yeah. So he starts suffering from stomach cramps. Yeah. So Felix Carvajal, doing very well in this race, steals two peaches, makes it to an apple orchard, picks two or however uh, many disgusting rotten apples are there, eats them, stomach cramps, decides to take a nap on the side of the trail. Well, he's been, in his defense, he's been jogging, walking, hitchhiking since New Orleans. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the fruit situation is in Mississippi, but it is not good from what I've seen. My limited view. We're it's getting normal. pretty close to peach territory down in Mississippi, Georgia. Yeah, I hear Georgia peaches. I never hear Mississippi peaches. No, Mississippi's really good at growing single wides. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. If you're from Mississippi, don't hate. Oh, don't hate don't, me. Don't put <laughs> address. So it's what's even more impressive about this is this guy fucks himself up with some nasty fruit, takes a nap, gets up, finishes the race in fourth place. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's fucking fantastic, right? Well, the guy that got attacked by a pack of wild dogs in East St. Louis came in ninth. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little more about what happens to Felix after this real quick because right. it's also very fascinating. Yeah. So he's after he completes this marathon, finishes fourth, he sticks around the U.S. for a while. He takes place in a few competitions. And he eventually is supposed to race again in Athens in 1906. So he gets on a boat and gets to Italy and disappears off the face of the earth. Doesn't make it to the race in Athens and full-blown disappears. There's records of him landing in Italy and disappearing after that. Rumors go around he's dead. It catches traction. His obituary runs in Havana. Olympic racer, the 1904 Olympic racer who finished fourth place after eating disgusting apples has died. Is the headline of the papers. His legacy. Six man. or so months later, he pops up back in Havana. Proved who he was. He's back. He's alive. He actually goes on to beat uh, an American in a long distance run. I can't remember the name of the American right now, but Felix Carvajal had made it 40 miles before the other guy tapped out the 1904 deal after him supposedly being dead. What a fascinating 
story. Yeah. He was like five foot tall and looked like Luigi. So after Felix Carvalho, yeah, we get to Fred Lors, who is a uh, another really huge staple name in this 1904 marathon. Really, cousin Freddie. So Lors was an American distance runner. At the same time, he was a career bricklayer. Hell yeah, he is America. Yeah, so he's laying bricks on his on Bears his fan, loves to job. pull a sausage, a couple two-tree sausage pies at night, maybe an old style, you know. So he lays bricks on his uh, mm-hmm. his day job, and he trains at night so he can stay in shape for this. Yeah. So he's this guy's doing all the preparation work. He's physically fit. He's actually the first guy to cross the finish line at the end of this 1904 marathon. As he's about to get the wreath and the medal placed over him mm. by Alice Roosevelt. And who is she? So... Alice Roosevelt, who I think was 20 years old at the yeah. time, uh, she was the daughter of President Roosevelt. Right, I assumed, but... As he's about to get awarded first place for this event, he calls him a fraud. It comes to light that around the nine-mile mark, he was suffering from stomach cramps like a mm-hmm. lot of these other racers, mm-hmm. and he gave up, and he also got in the, the coaching car that was following him oh, and hitches a ride back. Oh, he did the Subway Express. Yeah. Man. Now he's passing spectators and other runners, yeah. and he's waving at them. As he's going by like a dickhead. Mm. The car itself only makes it about 11 miles. And it breaks these, down. These are road conditions <laughs> that are rough. Yeah, they, they said they struggled. Or some of these articles say they struggled with vehicles overheating and breaking down due to the road conditions. Along athletes with the racers failing, struggling. Yeah, Cheating athletes, support vehicles failing. So he's now wow. at the 20 mile hmm. mark. He's got 4.85 miles left. And he feels good again. No more stomach cramps because he's been in a car for 11 miles. So he hops out of the car and takes off, continues the race at this point. He's reinvigorated, hops out of the car, completes the last almost five miles. And he gets there, crosses the finish line, is about to get awarded first place. Somebody calls him out on it. And he says it's a joke. Concedes. So regardless of the fraudulent attempt to win this gold medal, Lors actually goes on to win the Boston Marathon the next year. In 1905. Really? Better road conditions. Had to have been. Less wild dogs. Like wild dogs. So we, we now get to Thomas Hicks. So Thomas Hicks is the winner of the 1904 Olympics. Mm, if you would consider this victory. His experience during this race is probably the most traumatic out of everybody. Really? And he actually goes on to win. Right around the 10-mile mark, Thomas Hicks, he begins to require attention from the car behind him with his coach and his physician. He's, he's fallen out at 10 miles. And these guys were so invested in him winning that they take some very extreme measures to make sure he gets there. They, they get out of the car and they come up to him and he's, he's begging for a drink of water at the 10 mile mark. They deny him a drink of water. Jeez. They instead take a, a sponge with warm distilled water and they sponge out the interior of his mouth and they pour water on his head and on his body. Why couldn't he drink? You know, let's not beer bong water, but... <laughs> like a sit, you know, some just, just a few drops sit. on your tongue. Yeah, bub. So what, he what, uh, was there some kind of like mass legislation or rule against drinking fluids on the way to a long ass race? So I will, yeah. I will answer that question. Right. I promise. I'll shut up. Fire away, sir. After he gets his mouth sponged out and some water poured on him, he pushes through and he gets within seven miles of the finish line. At this point, his legs start failing him, and he's shaking and he's struggling. And he, he can't do it anymore. His trainers then get out. They're coaching him again. And they give him this concoction of egg whites and strychnine. Mm. 
So I was hoping for a little bit of strychnine. I'm yeah, thirsty. and we all commonly mm. know that as as rat poison. Historically, this is the first recorded instance of performance enhancing drugs being used in the Olympics. Really? When your body's shutting down and that off switch happens, uh. you give it strychnine. It it inhibits those glycine receptors in your spinal cord and it turns the switch back on. So it allows you to push to a further level. Yeah. He gets he gets this cocktail of egg whites and strychnine and it it blocks those glycine receptors and allows him to carry on so he's he's back to kind of mechanically running at this point he's not Mm -hmm. entirely invested or enthusiastic his body is kind of absorbing the strychnine it's allowing him to just continue somewhere in this moment of him Mm -hmm. getting this first dosage he sees lores run past him the fraudulent guy that was in the car and he loses his mojo again really he kind of checks out and then information had swept up that loris had cheated and at this point they're like two miles away and he's perking back up he's on his way to the finish line the only guy ahead of him has been disqualified so they decide to give him one more dose of this egg white and strychnine cocktail the only difference in this situation is they had a flask of brandy also so the first time they gave him his dosage they had this flask of brandy that they wanted to give him because it was also considered a stimulant at this time but mm-hmm. they were unsure of how he would receive the strychnine and the egg whites. So they had to monitor his condition first to make sure he would survive the very first dosage. So the second dosage, so they, they there, knew. There was an effort to like look out for his safety. A little bit, but yeah, at the same time, they nah, were giving this fucking guy the, rat poison. To the degree that it benefited their study. So they, yeah. they get around the second time. They learn uh, Loris is disqualified. He now, at this point, is super dosed up with strychnine and egg whites and brandy. And he begins to hallucinate around the two-mile mark. And he's Jesus. losing it. And he is convinced. He's hallucinating and talking out loud to his coaches and trainers who are right there with him, right. saying that he still has 20 miles to go in this race. He's convinced at the two-mile mark he has 20 miles. Still, he, at this point, eventually crosses the finish line at the stadium. His coach and his physician, I think, both were on either side of him, and they're doing the, his arms slung over their shoulders. Oh, wow. And they're carrying him and his legs are moving to make it look like he's running, uh, like he's making it over the finish line. They carry him over it. He was officially declared the winner of the 1904 marathon. They carried him over though, right? The threshold. Yeah. Implied Man. that he was running still. And maybe so weird. Yeah, maybe he wasn't. He made it, but he was the first guy that wasn't disqualified to actually cross the finish line. So they gave it to him. So Thomas Hicks yeah. gets declared the winner huh. officially. And when he crosses the finish line, the guy kind of collapses. It took four doctors in one hour before he could even get up and leave the grounds. Yeah. And in the process of this race with zero hydration possibilities and uh. being fed strychnine, this guy lost eight pounds uh-huh. in a 25-mile run. I think it Gallon was three hours and 28 minutes. I want to say 8.35 pounds is a gallon of water. So yeah, he sweated that out or, you know. Discharged in some way, pissing, spitting, peeing. I want to say it was three hours and 28 minutes because it was still to this day the slowest marathon. Right? So that's that's the story of the 1904 marathon. I love it. Did you ever run? No, I didn't. I didn't run long distance. Yeah. No, not long distance. No, it's horrible. Absolutely not. My dad ran Chicago Marathon, different things. You know, I never ran. I wouldn't even run a half marathon. Yeah, I never got to the point in my life where I experienced a runner's high. And I always just experienced cardiac arrest. Yeah, and sadness heavy and tears. And... Yeah. yeah, I can walk all over the place. Mm-hmm. But the moment you get me running, 
my knees start mm, popping. Really? My head hurts. <laughs> I can run definitely if I'm in danger. Uh, <laughs> I don't doubt that too, at all. Yeah, I'm re- my, I have a quick first step for an old guy, but it's the second and third step of the bed. So now I just pretty much shelter in place. Yeah, so long story short, no, I don't run. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no then? <laughs> no, I don't run. I don't, uh, I don't know. I guess I could see like the value in it uh, theoretically. I just, I don't enjoy. Yeah, there's only very few situations where I think I need to run. Most of that involves wild animals. I was an avid skateboarder, so I was athletic enough to stand on something that would carry me distances. Mm-hmm. So that was fa- that was fine for me. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of jumping. I don't know if that really counts as running. A lot of jumping and kicking a board around. I skated religiously. I loved heel flips. It was kind of my uh, signature move, if you will. I give them the what for with a heel flip. Oh, do you? <laughs> make, eye, make eye contact. Not anymore. Yeah, I uh, I tried to do a kickflip a couple months ago and was terrified I was gonna break my whole skeleton. Really, <laughs> I loved it, man. It was it was a really cool outlet, and it was those were the days where cell phones didn't really exist to the caliber uh-huh. they do now, and it was social circle, it was your yeah. friends, it was way to get out of the house. It was yeah. awesome. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. And this is gonna like <clears throat> derail us again a little bit, but don't you think that some of that is missing now from? the following generations like yeah they can't appreciate it and i guess i don't know why they would but the fact that they're so tethered it's like a oppressive ball and chain that they're connected to all the time yeah. no matter what they do there's your lack freedom from it it's weird and i don't i know it doesn't make sense when i explain it to somebody who doesn't know like we do just before right yeah we're the nostalgic generation yeah we had both so, we were yeah. what do they call it latchkey kid you come back like if something gets cut off bring it back with you and yeah. we'll send it in the lunch pail and we'll get it sewed back on but you behave yourself use the best judgment if you don't i don't want to know about it and you better get your ass home yeah okay don't tell me what you're doing if i'm not gonna like it yeah and there was the application of social science then uh, when you were when you could ride your bike down the street and see where all the bicycles were and you knew everybody was there hanging out yeah so you There's stop at that house weird and they're all identifying the like habits and things i don't think our kids recognize or fully appreciate even just like communication in person yeah. they don't know about threats because the way everybody talks so aggressively online and things, well, they don't have a real world like body of experience that mirrors that to say, oh, when someone looks you in the eye and says that what the same thing they would say online, you're in a pickle. Yeah. Because that's not a safe, like you don't have any concept of reality. No. And it's, that's, that's what I'm, that's the point I was trying to get at was yeah. that socially it, it helped my communication skills. It helped me verbally and, uh, a big thing right there that you were just hitting on was inflection. Mm-hmm. You know, your your body language and your inflection yeah. and your voice, the way you talk to people, your vernacular, mm-hmm. how you decide you're going to approach a conversation, uh-huh. how you decide you're going to approach an altercation. Yeah. Those things mattered. They That social yeah. ability. All to, those cues you're drawing on like a lifetime of experience of different environments. And you're quickly like, read, react, read, react. And like, what's yeah. best here? Because... It teaches you to navigate. It does. Socially. And I think that maybe they're lacking some of that now. And you'll watch them apply some of the same principles that are super acceptable and tolerated like in virtual social circles. Apply that in person on the street and all of a sudden somebody in the suburbs is in way over their head. Yeah. Because that flies on Twitter. But they're not used to having to like, they don't know these signs and signals you see. Okay. <clears throat> Why is this guy like... Where's his hands or how's he walking? Just even their body language. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, this isn't going to be a debate yeah. on a blog. You don't get much of that on TikTok. No. That's, you know, there's, that's, that, that was such an important 
perspective of growing up in, mm-hmm. the, in this nostalgic generation is we remember sure. when it was social and then we remember when it was digital. And mm-hmm. you're very right, man. Some of the shit you can get away with on the internet is not acceptable can you imagine? face-to-face with somebody oh, who is no. geared in an old-school mentality yeah. with that you know respect isn't given, it's earned. With all mm-hmm. that stuff, you can go on the internet and say whatever. Trolling has allowed keyboard warriors uh, to be just social juggernauts. Oh, sure. Think of all like the criticism and advice I could have for stuff completely unqualified and then in person would I have the same confidence to be like mm-hmm, you know yeah I mean I'm aware of it because I'm we're in that bridge generation but you know it mortifies the ones prior to it and the ones after it are oblivious like why what could happen yeah um anything I want there's definitely a disconnect yeah. yeah so I got a little bullet point here that I wanted to touch on too oh, yes so there was in, in other events, I didn't really cover the whole majority of the 1904 Olympics. I, mm-hmm. I covered more of just the marathon because it's it's a notorious event in Olympic history uh. that a lot of people don't really know about. James Sullivan. We, want, we talked about the water, the rehydration issue. So James Sullivan is the chief organizer of the games. And he intentionally chose limited areas for these runners to rehydrate at. And it was an attempt to test... The limits and effects of purposeful dehydration, which I read in some places was a normal scientific exploit at this time. Yeah. But this seems like a really weird time to put that into place. Yeah, weird, weird day to make that play. He would later, after the Olympics, after this marathon happens, yeah. he walked back on these comments and on this logic. And he was like, a 25 mile run is asking too much of human endurance. This is the guy that fucking intentionally made sure they couldn't get anything to drink. Put all these people through this ridiculously yeah. improbable display of endurance on purpose. And then walks his statements back later. Oh, yeah. That's what you do. Here's the sidebar story I had. Right, so, in one of the other events was gymnastics. So, this guy, George Iser, he wins six medals in one day. Three of them were gold medals with a wooden leg. His left leg was a wooden leg, wooden prosthesis. So, he lost this leg getting run over by a train. Shouldn't have been standing there. How crazy is that? Wow. Three gold Same medals, stuff. six in total, with That's one real leg, the other wooden, and he lost it, being ran over by a train. Yeah. Well, it just stays bizarre. The whole idea of the four, 1904 Olympics is just so bizarre. So my last little piece of random information that comes from this story is the effects that the CDC has for Strict 9 is that it causes generalized muscle spasms Cramps, mm. stiffness and tightness, agitation, mm. heightened, heightened awareness and responsiveness, respiratory failure, stimulation-sensitive seizures, and possibly death. Right. So, um, I have an exciting, uh, I, I think, uh, situation and story and individuals for the future I'd like to talk about. And that would be a, a rocketry engineer and occultist named Jack Parsons. Perhaps another man you've heard about um, by the name of Alistair Crowley or the wickedest man alive, the B666 himself. And um, maybe uh, a third fellow uh, injected in this situation, uh, L. Ron Hubbard. You may recognize his name too. I'm sure uh, a lot of the Scientology world and and science fiction writing from, from that era does. So I'm looking forward to it. I would like to brush up and make sure I have all my my ducks in a row before I, I present this, but I have a, a unique story and interesting thing I like to sell to you here uh, for free. 
You'll love it. Well, next week, I, I honestly, I can't wait for Sunday to tell his first story. I'm really excited to be on the other side of the microphone and uh, being able to crack the jokes and ask the questions. Uh, so I'm going to pin his ears back, make sure he does it. Uh, this has been the fun of Nonsense, and we love you both. Uh, whatever. Whatever. <laughs>